I am Pixie Turner, and you are listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 161. I'm your host, Andrzej Spinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jalan Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey son, hey son! So. Oh, yet another interview episode. We okay. We are on fire. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a long, long time, a long, long period when we didn't have an interview, and now we have two in a row. Yeah, good. But uh, they they both have some kind of actuality, so uh, it, it we have a reason why we do it. And this time we are interviewing Pixie Turner, and uh, it couldn't be more timely because. Her next book is out. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, we've pre-recorded the interview, so shall we crack on with that? Let's do this. Yes. Okay, yes, yes, yes. good. Every now and then, we interview someone whose life and or work as a skeptic might be interesting to our listeners and definitely has a European angle to it, either through representing a country on the old continent or a project stretching across borders. This time, we have Pixie Turner joining us again from London. Pixie is a nutritionist, biochemist, blogger, speaker and author who set out to change people's attitudes towards food and eating by explaining a science-based, healthy approach to nutrition. The reason why we asked her back, not too long after her first appearance on the show, is that she's now rolling out her second book, The No Need to Diet Book, in which she goes into the nitty-gritty of the distorted relationship with food that is so prevalent in today's society. Pixie, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great. So, uh, when when you first appeared on the show, uh, we had just met you at QED, and it was all new to us. And uh, since then, we've been following your your work. We've been following your activities as well. So, first of all, whenever we see you on um, social media, especially Instagram and uh, Twitter, <laughs> you appear a little bit angry. <laughs> <laughs> but then you went on writing this book, the No Need to Diet book, and you are still very outspoken and straightforward in your way of explaining stuff. But then still, you appear very friendly, and it's a very sympathetic approach that you took in explaining all that. So was that like a, a learning curve that you went through with this, or... Is that for therapeutic approach uh, or the therapeutic reasons for you choosing that attitude or, or how did that come about when you, even the, the last time we spoke, uh, you explained that you have such a great amount of anger in you because of your uh, former ways and, and what you believed in earlier? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. So I think it's unsustainable to be angry all the time. 
people yes. like it when I get angry, but I don't think it's sustainable. And the other part of that is that I wrote this book as if I was speaking to my nutrition clients. And my approach in clinic is it has a great deal more compassion when I'm dealing with someone one-to-one, a lot more kindness and compassion, which is so much more appropriate in that setting compared to when I'm doing something on social media, for example, that is talking to a wide range of people. And another element of that is that when I started writing the book, there was a lot of anger involved. And I ended up toning it down a little bit as I went along because I knew that there was a danger of coming across as aggressive. And I wanted to come across as passionate and assertive, but also kind and empathetic and understanding because I feel like with some of the topics that I write about in the book, that if I don't come from a position of empathy and understanding, I'm not going to change people's thought patterns. Yeah, and this, this is what really comes through, that your clinical practice that, that you even refer to quite often in the book. But you also emphasize that people should love themselves and their food. And you you do it quite regularly, not not only in the book, but, but outside the book as well. And you also say that this approach might sound like woo. And I really like that reflective kind of comment. Do you expect the skeptical community to jump on that and try to find it a bit woo-like? I definitely saw it as a risk, um, yes, which is why I jumped on it and kind of um, precluded that. And I also know that because of my own attitudes uh, that I've had towards this. It took me a while to come around to the ideas behind uh, self-compassion and self-care in particular. But having thought about it for a long time, read the research, spoken to clinicians and all that, I it is really important to look after yourself. And I realize this, especially as a nutrition professional, if I don't take the time to look after myself, I can't look after my clients properly. And I can't do my science communication work effectively if I'm not looking after myself. And I also, I don't think that saying you should love food is necessarily the most controversial statement because life, I really do think that life is too short to be miserable the whole time and not enjoy part of the process and seeing us eating is something we generally do three times a day every day for the rest of our lives why shouldn't that be an enjoyable process and I, that doesn't seem particularly controversial to me the idea of, of kind of more the kind of loving ourselves and I feel like love is a really strong word there because it's, it's, it's really almost impossible for most people to actually love themselves but just develop a relationship with themselves that is actually uh, based on kindness compassion understanding and also just not being too judgmental and not being too aggressive towards yourself. We all have a tendency, I think, to be very negative and harsh towards ourselves. And we like to think that that is a very effective motivator. But um, again, research shows that uh, feelings like guilt and shame are really ineffective long-term motivators, whereas actually treating yourself well is a much more effective long-term motivator towards behavior change and actually towards long-term happiness and health. How did you discover that the language that involved in, in our eating habits is the key when it comes to eating disorders? With the language thing, that wasn't really something I knew a lot about. But one of my closest friends is a linguist. And after a, many, many conversations with her, it really um, made me realize how important it is that, the, the, that we are careful about the language we use because it has such huge power. And she sent me so many papers, so many resources. I mean... It's, it's a crazy avenue of research because a lot of it does kind of go a little bit over my head because it's not my massive area of expertise. But 
I have read a lot of it and from what I have been able to understand, plus conversations with people who are linguists, it, that just kind of drew me down the path of realising that our words really are super, super important. And it's something I think we all need to be a little bit more mindful of because we don't think they have that much power, but actually they really, really do. So there's a concept called weight inclusivity that you are using. And it's not maybe commonly heard in the society. Can you explain what that is and how it's achievable? Yeah, so the weight inclusive approach is basically an alternative to what we, the system that we currently have, which is very uh, much focused on that weight is the most important determinant of health and that we all, if your weight is above a certain threshold, you need to go on a diet to reduce that because reducing your weight is the number one most important thing. And the weight inclusive approach looks at this a bit differently. It says that weight is one small part of the equation that makes up health. And actually putting it as a primary focus doesn't seem to be very effective in the long term for people's health and general well-being. And it also takes into account all the fact that there are also a lot of side effects to going on a diet that we don't really like to talk about. There's a lot of potential negative side effects of that. And we don't really talk about those because we see kind of being thin as the be all and end all of health, even though there is a huge amount of evidence that suggests that simply engaging in health promoting behaviors, regardless of your weight, will have benefits on your health. The important part of this is that it is inclusive across the spectrum of BMI. So if someone is at a quote unquote normal BMI and they are drinking heavily, smoking loads, not eating five a day and not moving their body, they can still massively benefit from doing those four things. And if they do those four things, they will benefit. And if someone has a much higher BMI, they will also massively, massively benefit from those four behaviors, even if their weight doesn't change. One of my favorite pieces of research is uh, is actually two pieces, one in the US, one in the UK. And collectively, they look at uh, over 100,000 participants. And it showed that when people across the BMI spectrum engaged in these four health-promoting behaviors, their risk of mortality with any given year was pretty much equal across the board. And that, I think, really shows how much power health-promoting behaviors have when you don't just make it about weight. Because if you make it purely about losing weight, what if the methods that someone uses to lose weight and achieve health is, in fact, really unhealthy? And we know that a lot of people use really unhealthy methods of weight loss to actually achieve that. And that in my mind in particular, is not health and is not seeking health and is not healthy in any shape. And I think by making weight as this like be all and end all, we're really putting people at risk of things like eating disorders, putting people at risk of feeling really crap about themselves, and also putting people at risk of actually misunderstanding what health really is. Yeah, then you start explaining what following health-related advice can lead to and that it can be overdone as well oh yes <laughs> so is this uh what you call orthorexia or uh, when when it's a health related uh eating disorder yeah so orthorexia is an unhealthy obsession with being healthy it's when uh, the quest to achieve a healthy lifestyle is taken to the point where it is uh, psychologically unhealthy because it becomes obsessive. It is socially really damaging because you can't have a social life when you're obsessing about food every second of the day. And it also can be physically damaging because it can lead to things like vitamin deficiencies and can also lead to malnutrition when it gets really serious. Is this something that you yourself went through? 
Yeah, absolutely. I took it way too far in pursuing health. And that was that was really my whole wellness days was very much um, when I was kind of so fixated on the purity and the healthful properties of every little thing I was eating. It was so obsessive. And that's that's not a good place to be. And that's why when I talk about health promotion and pursuing health, part of that is also just being a bit chill about food and realizing that food also is the be all and end all of health. And actually being healthy long term means going out for pizza with friends and having fun. It means eating a donut. It means it means having birthday cake with someone because that's just part of being human and part of enjoying life. Okay, I'm taking notes now. This sounds good. <laughs> pizza, good. <laughs> yeah, because if you're eating pizza with friends, that's yeah. going to have so many more benefits than literally yeah. sitting at home eating a boring salad that makes you sad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Getting back to orthorexia, how well is it documented or is it fully categorized in uh, health practices? How how do we position it within the usual healthcare system? I don't think we really have a proper answer to that because it's still it's quite new. It's only been around for a limited amount of time. It really became something that um, appeared on everyone's radar maybe like 10 years ago max. And it's still got a really very small but growing area of research so we don't have huge amounts of research on it yet we don't know exactly how to categorize it we don't have official diagnostic criteria yet uh, we don't really know for certain how to treat it so it's a, still a little bit of a of a gray area and it's not something that a lot of healthcare practitioners actually know about and it's definitely not something that most healthcare practitioners know how to deal with I think I'm one of the very few people in the UK who actually um, is happy to treat people with orthorexia and kind of help them get out of that space with a specific focus on that. Do you do that all on your own or you consult other uh, experts when, when it's a bit of a more serious case? Yeah, a lot of my clients who have those kinds of related issues are also seeing psychologists or other mental health professionals who I am then in close contact with and talk to on a regular basis to make sure we're on the same page and doing what's best for the individual. And what are the main factors uh, that can lead to this disorder? With orthorexia, it's it, like any eating disorder, it's really complicated and there's no one specific cause. It's usually a combination of things. So it might be for example, that someone has uh, aspects of their childhood and personality that predisposes them towards that. So things like a uh, low self-esteem or perfectionism. Uh, there can also be or just you know that general feeling of uh, something happens and you feel out of control. Food is a, a, a an effective way that people use to try and control what's going on in their lives. And I think in particular with orthorexia, it's social media definitely does seem to play a big role. And that is because there is so much misinformation about health on the Internet, especially on social, me social media, where it's incredibly unregulated and people say pretty much any old thing that comes into their head. It's really, really quite scary. Mm. And all that, if you combine the misinformation on social media with someone who maybe has um, a, a variety of factors that predispose them towards that, I think it massively increases their risk and it can be something on it can be something they read somewhere that ends up being the trigger that leads them to developing orthorexia. So so the the cases that you encounter in your practice how how severe are they or can they be? I don't usually see people who are super super severe cases because those people tend to be more likely to be hospitalized because of um severe malnutrition. The people I see tend to be people who 
they're just really confused about what to eat. They have so many conflicting messages that they've listened to. And in some cases, people can be uh, quite underweight because they're just uh, they feel afraid to eat a lot of a lot of different foods. But it, it really varies. It really depends on where someone's at, what they've read. But most people I see have a lot of fear foods, a lot of food rules and have a lot of anxiety about eating a whole different bunch of things. And so they they want someone to kind of help them get to a place where they actually feel more comfortable around eating a wider variety of foods without any fear or guilt. Yeah. Do you, do you get sometimes cases where you say, this is so serious, you need to t- deliver this person to a hospital because it's such a severe case? I've not had that happen yet, but I have sometimes told people that they can't see me because they're not seeing a mental health professional and I'm not equipped to uh, to help them on my own. That wouldn't be ethical. Right, right. Uh, how do people uh, find you? I'm assuming that the, they first need to realize um, there is an issue to deal with. And so when I say find you as in, you know, how they come to seek your services, I guess. Um, a lot of people find me through social media in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So they see what I post on social media. I've written a lot in the past about how to tell if your relationship with food is good. And if not, like here are some here are some warning signs, here are some markers and things that you can look out for. And people then identify with a lot of of that and then decide, oh, maybe I'd better go and actually see someone. And some people have come because of my first book. They've read that and kind of seen themselves in a lot of what I've written and have decided then to come see me. But for the most part, it tends to be um, from social media. Although sometimes people just find me randomly on the internet. And that's always great because I'm like, how? Because that's really unusual. Do, do you actually work with other pro- professionals, like in counselling and psychotherapy, or not really? Only indirectly, so not in the same room. Okay. But I, I have people who I refer to. I have people who refer on to me, yeah. and uh, anyone who I who I work with, uh, any clients who are also seeing mental health professionals, I work closely with them and communicate with them, usually mm-hmm. through email and through the phone. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier the the role of social media. And uh, for some reason, you put an extra emphasis on Instagram. Is it because you are more active on Instagram or you see this tendency of everything moving to that platform? I see Instagram as being generally a bit more of a dangerous place, I guess, for these kinds of things, because it's so firstly, it's so easy to uh, to curate what you want to see on Facebook and Twitter you can see retweets and reposts from other people. And so you're more likely to be exposed to things that you aren't directly following. It's also really easy to have a conversation with someone on Twitter. It's a lot more difficult to do that on Instagram. The other thing is that Instagram is very visual. It's obviously it's an image first platform. And what that means is that it is ideal for for any person to constantly compare their food intake, their lifestyle, and especially their body and the way they look to other people. Because they literally just have to look at an image and they can they can then make a comparison between themselves and that person. And because obviously people tend to put their their highlights, their best pictures on Instagram, what you're essentially then doing is comparing your behind the scenes to someone's highlight reel. And what will always basically happen there is that you'll fall short and you'll feel 
negative, more negative about yourself because you don't match up to that standard of what someone else is doing. And because Instagram is so visual, that makes it so much easier to do that comparison, which kind of happens automatically on our brains because uh, we we always do that little bit of social comparison. That's uh, that's something we've we've our brains have kind of done since the dawn of time, but our brains have never been in such an environment where that comparison is constant and we have twenty four seven access to it through social media. That's not really something that's ever happened in history until now, and it's a huge amount of overload of negative feelings towards yourself because you don't match up to those expectations and don't match up to those standards of of what other people are posting. And that then makes people feel a lot worse about themselves. And it can also drive people to more and more extreme uh, behaviors around food, I think, um, because they will also see what someone looks like on Instagram and see what they're eating and think that therefore, if they eat the same thing, they can also look like that person. Well, unfortunately, they will never look like that person because the reason that person looks like that is mainly down to genetics. Yeah, and there and there is a lot of fear mongering going on as well. That that is absolutely prevalent on both Facebook, I would say, Instagram, and Twitter. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. The fear mongering is kind of across the board, but the visual mm-hmm. aspect of Instagram just adds a whole another layer to it. Yeah, you've done a lot of research, and it's very refreshing to see all those papers that that you actually cite in your book. Well, it it makes reading a little bit difficult, though, I have to say. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not distracting, but for a skeptic, it's always, oh, oh, let's check this out. I'm interested. And, and then, oh, you, yeah. end up, then you, you end up browsing through that one instead of uh, reading on uh, in the book. Yeah, what well, I recommend people do there is uh, take a highlighter and highlight the references that you want to read, read to the end of the chapter, and then come back to the references you've highlighted and look them up. Okay, good advice. Good advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I'm interested. What is the connection between this, uh, these fear mongers and with uh, those believing in conspiracy theories? Have you, have you done any kind of research into that? I haven't looked into that, but that's that's an interesting thing that I definitely want to explore. I definitely have seen that people who fall for a lot of these kinds of food myths are also more likely to fall for a lot of kind of medical things like homeopathy yeah. and um, acupuncture and all those things. There does seem to be a link there. But I do think to an extent food is also in a unique position there. And that I think a lot of people, I, I can see how it would be possible for someone to be very skeptical in all other aspects of their life except for food and that's because food is so personal and so much part of our identity and because uh, messages about food and health are everywhere around us all the time and because we place such a huge moral value on food and health and you know health is considered to kind of be a goal in and itself not really a means for obtaining other goals in life which is i don't think the way it should be um health should be something we 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 strive for for a reason not because it's intrinsically good because it doesn't make you a better human being so because of all those things i think there is more of a tendency for people to fall for food and nutrition related pseudoscience maybe if if even if there's someone who's not likely to fall for other kinds of uh, conspiracy theories and things like that Okay, that that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I was assuming only because because there is uh, this uh, in group out group kind of attitude within this uh, area, and uh, you you mentioned it in the book as well that holier than thou attitude. Yeah, we are the moral 
superiors to 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 all the rest of the of humanity who are not the healthy eaters exactly like we are the enlightened ones and we know oh, better yeah. and we therefore look down on and judge others for the way that they eat and that's why i describe them as food cults because they it's such cult-like behavior it's so religious in nature and it's so interesting um yeah. once you kind of start seeing that you notice that kind of religious language and religious attitudes towards food you notice it everywhere it's so interesting yeah You started out uh, as, as part of that community, as one of, of many influences that promoted this kind of behavior and uh, ideals and stuff. And now you've sort of switched sides. Do you feel very alone at, at being rational and scientific in this kind of communication now? Thankfully, um, not anymore. I did at the beginning, but now not so much. So one of my closest friends actually switched um, from wellness to Uh, to team evidence uh, around the same time I did, which is great. And we're still really, really close friends because of that. It's, it's when you go through something like that together, I think you're going to be friends for life. But I've also made it a point to surround myself with uh, with scientists and healthcare professionals and a whole bunch of people who I have a lot of respect for, who are considerably more experienced in their relative fields um, than I am in my field and who constantly challenge me and who I can have really great, complex, intricate discussions with about all sorts of aspects of health and and research. And that I think that is so exactly what I need and I think makes me um, a better scientist in general. Yeah. And also not feel so alone because I'm surrounded by these people all the time. Yeah, but I bet you still get a lot of hate mail from your former uh, oh my god yes Mm. oh my god like when i i wrote about celery juice Mm. holy shit that was intense (laughs) i had to i had to i had to turn off my dms and turn off all comments on instagram because people were constantly shouting abuse at me and i had to turn it all off so they could stop harassing me what did you say about the celery juice I said that I have to, I, I didn't even say that, it, or maybe it's a placebo, maybe it's just hydration. Yeah. I didn't even offer any explanations. I simply said, firstly, I think it's concerning that we're relying on anecdotes when there are plenty of anecdotes out there for, to, from where people say, oh, you know, bloodletting worked for me or exorcism worked for me. Why are we so happy to discount that? But when it comes to food, we're very happy to accept anecdotes. That was my first issue. My second issue that I pointed out was the fact that We we people are glossing over the fact that the medical medium talks to a spirit and has no medical qualifications just because he's he's trying or he's trying to do some good and he's helped people like we even if he has helped people we still we still shouldn't overlook the fact that he's a massive charlatan with no qualifications like I refuse to look past that that in itself is concerning and I think it's not okay that people are just like oh well so he talks to spirits so he doesn't have a medical degree it doesn't matter it matters. Mm. <laughs> and people really didn't like me saying that people really did not like that yeah. it's a lot of, of cults not just about the food and stuff but also about the people right yeah people get very defensive um and it's like why are you getting defensive why are you defending this guy he's never gonna see this he's blocked me on instagram he has no idea like you're not gonna get any bonus like <laughs> points with him for defending him he literally doesn't see it mm. <sighs> yeah no it's based <clears throat> on the actual belief Oh, oh yeah, that, that that they hold, yeah, yeah. But it's quite funny to see people massively defending someone who's never going to read that in the first place. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a logical fallacies, isn't it? People seem to ha- be falling over them all the time, um, and it's yeah. uh, it's hard sometimes to point the, point it out to them and make them see it. But uh, yeah, 
So the, with the first book, The Wellness Rebel, uh, that book was like a coming out for you um, in, in the sense that you kind of, you, you, you said, you said to the world, I'm, you know, I'm the science minded uh, in, a person who looks at, at the food in a certain way. And, um, you know, there are certain things you should be wary about. But then your next book, uh, which is coming out soon, No Need to Die book, what do you, what would you like to achieve with, with this book? Who do you want to reach um, and what results do you want to see? I kind of want to reach everyone, uh, really, <laughs> because um, I know that, for, uh, for example, up to 80% of women and a growing number, but at least 50% of men have some sort of disordered relationship with food and their bodies. That is a huge number of the population. And I would like for as many of those people as possible to read the book and afterwards just feel a little bit more comfortable in their food choices, a little less guilty about eating certain foods and know kind of how to get towards a place where they can feel a little bit better towards themselves and not be really hard on themselves all the time. That's really what I what I want to achieve with that. And also for people to judge others for their food choices a little bit less. I think we all need to stop constantly looking down on others or judging others for the food choices they make when we have no idea about any anything of their lives. We're literally getting a snapshot with the snapshot of one single food choice they make. And we have no idea what's going on in their lives. We have no idea what it's like to be that person. We have no idea if what they're eating is something that they eat every day or whether it's a one-off thing. And either way, it's none of our business what other people eat. It really is none of our business. And if that is something that people take away, then I think then hopefully I'll start to do my job. Also, throughout the book, I've kind of offered self-assessment so people can gain a little bit more awareness of actually where they are in relation to how they feel about food and kind of how... Uh, their their ideas about food and health and then at the end I offer a lot of ideas about how to uh, maybe work towards improving some of those different aspects whether it's unfollowing a whole bunch of people on social media or whether it's uh, learning to be um, a little bit kinder towards your own body and so with the first book I was obviously very focused on the wellness industry but the wellness industry is just one small part of the whole diet industry and What people, I think, often forget is that the diet industry doesn't really care about your health because they're there to make money. And the way they make money is by getting repeat customers. And the way they get repeat customers is to create plans that fail. And they're very effective at doing that. (laughs) Yeah, they all are, I guess. Um, It's, uh, I guess it's something I'm sure you have thought about yourself as well, but... um... It's human nature to judge. <laughs> we always, it's, we do, we do it really well. But c- quite often we, for example, if like it's uh, a family member or a friend, you, you, you do that pr- because you care, <laughs> uh, in a way, because you, you don't want people to, um, I don't know, make unhealthy choices or, uh, obviously because unhealthy eating leads to unhealthy bodies, et cetera, and, and so, all sorts of things. And I guess it's, it's a very fine line to walk. How would you then approach looking at, at, at food and, and, and a sort of communicating with your uh, friends and loved ones in, in these circumstances? Yeah, I think the first thing, the most important thing is that um, making someone feel guilty or ashamed for their food choices is not an effective long-term oh, strategy. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah. I think... I think we often underestimate the power of what we say has on people mm-hmm. just from, from being in clinic. Like when I ask people to talk me through their, their history with food, for example, they can, they often have very vivid memories of things that people have said to them that have really stayed with them long-term. And so I think we do massively underestimate the power of the the, the words we have 
have on other people. And I think I think the other thing is that we need to look at health a little bit more broadly and stop purely focusing on physical health at the expense of mental and social health. That's one thing we are so keen to do. We're so focused on our physical health that we neglect the others, even though they are all of equal importance. And sometimes making a decision for your mental health means placing that above a priority of physical health. That is sometimes a really important thing that you need to do in like a specific instance, like, like for example, eating a pizza or if you're really, really tired, eating a cake because it makes you happy. Mm. But I also, I guess, uh, once you have made these decisions that makes make you then uh, feel better uh, and uh, in, in yourself, that will have a knock-on effect and then essentially you are making the right choices most of the time apart, you know. From those. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you have to, I think it's important to think for, to look at it from both a short term and a long term perspective. So mm-hmm. short term, the foods that make you feel better tend to be sweet things, things like pizza, comfort food, things that long term make people feel generally happier are lots of fruits and vegetables. So there's a place for both. Absolutely. There's always a place for both. But also if you if you look at it from a perspective of looking after yourself well and treating yourself well, you're more like Uh, the way I like to talk about it with people is that imagine when you were a child and you had a favorite toy, you tr- you treated that toy so well. You gave it so much love. You gave it so much care. And as a result, it usually looked a lot better than other toys because it got like that special treatment. You need to treat your body like that toy. Because if you look at it from a perspective of looking after yourself well, then eating lots of fruits and vegetables is not a chore. It's actually an act of looking after yourself and treating yourself with respect. And that shift in mindset can be huge for some people in terms of just actually just getting a, a much more positive Um, attitude towards food Hmm. that's a great point yeah how optimistic are you that uh what what you say should be done and should be achieved in terms of uh changing our attitudes towards food and uh what do you see the most important steps to be in this process oh that's tricky in terms of how optimistic i am i mean (laughs) i'm optimistic that it will For some people, it will be an instant light bulb moment, and for others, it will take a little bit longer. I th- I'm optimistic that everyone can take something away from this book, and if they take something, that's still absolutely better than nothing, and I'm happy with that. I know that for some people, it can take a lot longer than for others. I know this because of the messages that I get on social media on a daily basis. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, I've been reading your stuff for months. And I was kind of like, eh, not sure. But eventually I was like, actually, she's right. and I need to listen to her. So sometimes it can take people a while to come round. And I've already forgotten the second part of the question. <laughs> One part of the question was your optimism, and uh, the other thing is that uh, what are the most important steps in this process? And um, most important steps, I think, is firstly to try and cultivate a more positive attitude towards yourself. Because when you think more positively towards yourself, you're more inclined to look after yourself well and treat yourself well. I think that's one of the key most important things. The second thing is to not beat yourself up when you eat things that you perceive to be unhealthy, because that's also not helpful. And the third thing is, is I think to create a much broader understanding and definition of health, rather than focusing simply on either aesthetics, as in what your body looks like, or simply on physical health. I think when people have a broader definition of what health actually is and means to them, They're going to have a lot more flexibility, a lot more general happiness, because there's less of an obsessive uh, nature to that. 
And yeah, just generally feeling, yeah, that having that flexibility just makes life a little bit easier as well. And the other thing I think that the, one of the really so simple things that people can do is go through everyone you follow on social media and go through every single one and decide, is it, is this person making me feel good about myself or is this person making me actually feel really crap about myself? If they make you feel bad, unfollow because you don't need that. And every person you unfollow, you can replace with something nice like plants or puppies or something that you look at and immediately makes you smile. (laughs) Really great. (laughs) My pre-ordered copy from Amazon of the No Need to Diet book says it will be shipped on 7th of March. Is that correct? Yep, that's publication day. It's yeah. literally like, what, three days away? Just around when this uh, episode comes out, I believe. Yeah, I I'm think by slightly the time... scared. Oh, are you? Yeah, because I, I want people to like it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, that's what I was going to say, that I think one of the best steps to take, if you are about to start walking this this path, is buying Pixie's book because it's a brilliant book. I don't think you've left any corners uncovered. It's it's amazing uh how you paint a picture that this field is actually more complicated than just black or white. And the more you understand this very important field in all our lives, I mean eating and your your health, the more successful you can be in in achieving a healthy situation. Yeah, so... absolutely. And and on top of that, I think the other thing I people it is complicated, but people also need to tune in with themselves and recognize that their body is going to be different to someone else's body. Yeah. And actually being able to apply these things to your own personal experience of being human is something that everyone needs to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure it is. And uh, so but by the time this interview goes out, I'm pretty sure that by then the book will be available. And, and while I'm on Amazon, actually, I, I find that it uh, tells me that there's another book planned for September, a, a recipe book called uh, Pixie's Plates. Is that's that true? on Amazon now? Oh that's God, on, that's on Amazon. Amazon. Did, did I spill the beans? Was it too, too early to, to... I haven't actually made that announcement publicly. So. <laughs> <laughs> They've done it for you. Yeah, damn Amazon. Uh, so this, the the Pixie Plates book is essentially, it's the recipes from the Wellness Rebel condensed into one book that is, is just the recipes for people who just want recipes and not to read all my ramblings. And there's going to be a new introduction to it. And uh, that's, I, I thought it was November, but if it's September, that that's okay too. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it's a book for people who just want the recipes without all the other aspects of the book. All right. So you better start working on that now since Amazon has promised to, to, that it's coming. So. Yeah, it sounds like I need to make an official announcement about that. But I'm kind of focused on this book that is out in three days. So Yeah, I, I think it's sensible to take one book at a time. It's good. Yeah, definitely one at a time. It's yeah. too exhausting otherwise. Yeah, let me wish you a fantastic, great success with this book. I I think it deserves all the attention. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, some of the local publishers in uh, different European countries will jump on it and publish it in different other languages as well, because I, I really think it should be in the hands of everyone who has ever eaten anything. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> pretty inclusive. That's a pretty broad yes. audience. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, book is for anyone who has ever eaten something and felt guilty afterwards. Uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, nice addition. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an important clarification, yes. <laughs> okay, so Pixie Turner, thank you very much for joining us today. 
thank you so much for having me again it's been it's always it's always great yeah thanks for coming on it's been great talking to you and yes. l- let us know if you're um up to something else again if you if you're writing another two or three books uh <laughs> just just drop us a line and uh, we'll include you in the show <laughs> and and good luck uh with uh, the book promotion i guess um i'm sure it'll do uh, great and oh yeah we... we understand that you you are quite well booked for different talks all over the uk yeah i'm basically doing a skeptics in the pub tour and okay. i'm so excited to be doing that good okay so good luck with those as well and uh wish you great success okay pixie turner thank you very much and goodbye thank you thank you bye 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 Okay, I loved every moment of this interview. Uh exactly how I loved reading the book. So I do recommend it to everyone. Yeah. Get your hands on one and yep. uh, don't steal it. Buy it. <laughs> don't <laughs> steal it. How do you steal it? Yeah. I mean, get, getting your hands on one can mean stealing. Okay, it too, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we we want you to support Pixie in this because uh, we want the sales to go up because it's a great book. Yeah. It, she's one of our heroes uh, in the yeah. sense that we love people who've been on the what we feel is the wrong side of woo and then found out that oh my god I'm wrong this is how it should be and then starts to apply rational thinking critical thinking critical. scientific m- methodology and uh, comes mm-hmm. around and has the courage to admit it and and communicate yeah. it that's Fantastic. And communicated so well. I mean, she's a very approachable person, very easy to chat to, as I don't know if it comes across in our podcast, but we certainly enjoy it. <laughs> um, I just also wanted to mention to you to leave a review on Amazon for her, mm. five star. I'm sure it'll boost the uh, the book popularity there and uh, be a good promo for her. Great. And by the way, if you are leaving a review on her book, you can go online and leave us a review as well on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Indeed. Or get in touch. Let us know if yeah. you like the interview, what you did like or didn't like about uh, our show, any suggestions, ideas, news. Get yes. in touch. Of course. And uh, you can do that via various uh, means. So you can email us on info at theesp.eu. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at espodcast underscore eu. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook, send direct message, or go on our website, which is theesp.eu. Yes, where you, of course, as usual, will find the events in Europe page, where we keep the calendar updated with everything that's going on, skeptics in the pub, meetings, uh, and other things. We have conferences coming up. I think we will talk about that a little bit in a future episode, hint, hint. And um, if you want to help us a little bit, and we really appreciate it if you do, you could go to Patreon slash The ESP and pledge to pay us a dollar or so for every episode that we release. That really, really helps, and it also makes us feel very good. Indeed, (laughs) indeed. Okay. Well, I think this has been all that we had time for this week. Uh, Thank you very much, Yelena and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. Пока-пока.
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Sir, are, are, you, are, you, are you done, Anders? Or? Yes, I think I am. Okay, good. <laughs> at the ESP podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. At the what? Uh, I'm off social media now, so you've got. <laughs> you can't blame me for things. We do. <laughs>